Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozloff. Let's dive in. Even now, like we've all seen this huge wave of people putting NFTs as their profile pictures on Twitter. Mine is a me bit. And so if I find someone else who has a me bit, we have this immediate connection. And so I think this this idea of sharing identity in digital space is going to be huge. And so when we think about what what a Tinder on the blockchain might look like, it might be, you know, sharing what what social tokens you are a part of. And you might have a lot in common with someone that you swipe right on with, you know, on this Tinder on the blockchain. And that might be a better way that people connect in this, you know, future uh, Web3 world. At the deep end, we're creating a space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that matter. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of commerce, higher education, art, governance, longevity, and more. Joining me this week in the deep end is Gabby Goldberg. While her day job is investing in early-stage startups, Gabby is perhaps best known for her essays on crypto, the curator economy, Web3, and other topics that fit under the wide umbrella of what is increasingly known as the metaverse. What is the metaverse? It's what happens when social and economic structures span both physical and digital spaces. It's not just about cryptocurrency and NFTs. The implications of a functioning metaverse with high adoption can affect almost every corner of life, from careers to organizational governance to finding romantic relationships. In today's episode, we discuss what it means to be a citizen of the metaverse and how participation in it will have far-ranging consequences that affect the future of social platforms, creator incentives, information diets, and much, much more. There are no experts in uncharted territory, only pioneers. Though early in her career, Gabby has quickly risen to become an authority on the subject of the metaverse, which is so new that we're watching it be built in real time. Gabby has ventured far into this new frontier, and this episode is devoted to its continued exploration. Also joining us in the deep end is guest host Shreya Navetia, program director of On Deck Catalyst, of which Gabby is a fellow. On Deck Catalyst is an eight-week remote program for young leaders who want to solve the world's most pressing problems and take an unconventional path to building their career. For more people to continue to live in the metaverse, the future of careers will only get more interesting from here on out. If you like this episode and want to dive deeper into all things Web3, be sure to check out our episode of Jared Dicker. We'll link to that episode and all other resources mentioned during this one in the show notes. The Deep End is produced by On Deck, where top talent goes to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to The Deep End, check out ideas.beyonddeck.com. Com. All right, let's dive in. Gabby Goldberg, welcome to the deep end. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. I'm also joined by my on deck colleague, Shreya, who is going to be an amazing co host slash guest for this conversation. This is to go a lot of different ways. Um, for those of you in the live audience, we are going to let this go for a 35, 40, 45 minutes or so. Then we'll transition to an audience Q&A session. If you ask the brilliant questions that people asked last week when we had Delian on, we will include those in the actual episode as well too. Really excited for this. So let's just get into the conversation. So I want to start this off, then I'll throw it to Gabby and Shreya with saying that this conversation is supposed to be around the metaverse. But as Shreya and I were talking about the show and the conversation we wanted to have, it quickly became clear that this is really a conversation about ideas, about the zeitgeist, what everyone is choosing to focus on, especially at a time where it feels like one week you're hyper-focused on the creator economy, next week you're supposed to learn about the metaverse, the next week all your cool friends have these really cool NFT Twitter picks. So let's just start by focusing on the metaverse and taking a step backwards and going from there. So just to start, Gabby, what is your definition of the metaverse? Because we all know that everyone has their own definition of it. What is your definition of it? And then what has gotten you excited about the topic? Yeah, sure. Um, you know what? I rarely use the term metaverse when I when I talk about all of these big ideas. And I think it's because it's such an umbrella term for all the areas that I like to think about. So to me, crypto fits into it. 
Web3 fits into it, digital culture and kind of future of social fits into it. But the the definition that I really like is the one from Matthew Ball's piece, aptly named The Metaverse. Um, <laughs> and there's a summary of that piece in one of Packy McCormick's uh recent pieces. And the way he summarizes it is the metaverse is always on. It's a real-time world where uh, multiple people can participate at the same time. And it has a fully functioning economy that spans the physical and digital worlds. So again, like super umbrella term, but that's kind of what I use to describe it. So the most obvious question here, you went through a couple of different things, crypto, web three, but I'm really interested in online culture especially given some of your writing around culture recently. Can you just define online culture? We've had a few conversations on the podcast about it, but define online culture within the context of like this broad, we're going to get deeper conversation around the metaverse. Yeah, sure. These are like the simplest questions, but also literally the hardest questions. <laughs> when I think about digital culture, I think about the the corners of the internet, like the the niches of the internet that people spend a lot of time in. And what's interesting about those spaces is when they happen in real life, it's typically like small, intimate communities that don't have the opportunity to reach mass scale. But when you have the resources that you have on the internet, it's actually quite easy um, uh, relatively for these like small communities that think about these niche topics to reach mass scale and mass penetration. And so um, like what's an example would be um, like, the whole GameStop frenzy that came from a tiny Reddit thread. That's like a perfect example to me of digital culture. Kind of the way that I think about it more broadly, and maybe we'll find time to talk about this later on in the podcast, but the sort of old guard of social apps that initially brought us online, like Twitter and MySpace and Facebook and things like that was all about sharing real life experiences online and connecting with your real life connections online. So Facebook was all about bringing your college friends online and interacting with them in a digital space. And Instagram was all about taking photos of your real life with your real life friends and sharing them in a digital space. And for those use cases, it it worked out really well, obviously, like we use those products every day, but in kind of an unintended consequence of those products is now we spend so much time on the internet. Even before this podcast went live, um, one of you asked me, you know, how do you all know each other? And we know each other through the internet and like, now these are friends and these are connections that I have in real life and, and in the digital world. And so when I think about digital culture, I think about what are the products and services and modes of interaction that will help us, you know, make these digital connections and digital experiences better. So kind of at a high level, that's how, that's how I think about it. You know, I'm thinking the obvious follow-up when you say something, make these experiences better, what would you say the problem with these experiences are today? I mean, the problem is they just fundamentally weren't built for these use cases. And so, you know, when you think about Instagram, Instagram is great at sharing real life experiences, taking photos. But when we think about the amount of time that we spend online, we don't just take photos anymore. We take screenshots, we watch live streams, we follow influencers that we'll never meet in real life. We've got internet friends. You know, my, my first internet friend was a friend I made on Minecraft when I was 14 and we're still friends and we still follow each other on Instagram and we've like never met in real life. And so you have all of these digital experiences and digital relationships and, you know, it's not the fault of these products that, that they don't support those interactions, but instead it's just kind of time for a new wave of social products to be able to support those things. And so when I think about the future of social for me, it's how do we better share these digital experiences? And so, for example, there is an early stage company that I am a huge fan of called Pager, and they kind of brand themselves as like an Instagram for screenshots, basically saying screenshots are the photos of your digital life. That's just one example. Um, there's another interesting, you know, early stage consumer social company that uh, is sort of like a, a Twitch live stream, but for mobile. And so instead of live streaming your face on Instagram live or TikTok live, you now can live stream, you know, like your Robin hood trades or the types of online shopping you do on your phone and things like that. And all of these inherently core digital native experiences that are really difficult to share right now. Something that's interesting there is to what degree do you think existing social platforms 
are able or aren't able to evolve to meet these improved use cases. So I think a good example of this would be Twitter. It's obviously one of the oldest ones you've listed, but they're able to pivot pretty quickly to make Twitter spaces not only competitive, but in certain communities actually is the superior of Clubhouse. So I'd be love to hear how you think about how much the existing platforms are able to change and where the potential weaknesses they would have if you're an upstart looking at those spaces. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, certainly the, these companies can innovate really quickly. Side note, I really miss fleets. I thought that was great. Um, <laughs> but there are also all of these like fundamental problems or, or not even problems, but just fundamental shifts in the ways that we interact online. And so like a big part of it is like ownership. Twitter is never going to be a place where you have full ownership of your content because that's not you know, how that, how that platform was created. And so that's why you see platforms like Mirror start to come out with decentralized publishing platforms that let you, you know, wholly own your content. And so it's these macro shifts that I think will be more difficult for these like larger players and old guards to compete with. Of course, features you can roll out quickly, but these are, you know, big trends in how people interact online changing really quickly. Um, Hey, Gabby, this is Shreya, by the way, everyone, since I haven't spoken yet. Um, I'm really curious about when you're talking about the different media that will move into this kind of future, kind of like next next wave of the internet into the metaverse. If all of that was monetized, I think maybe this is because we're in a transition moment, but if I imagine my own media consumption, if it was all monetized, paywalled in all of these like walled gardens where I had to intentionally choose or somebody had to charge me for each of those consumption activities, um, it seems like it would really just limit the access of everything. And so I guess, how do you think about that maybe with the media that we have that is free and starting to be paid right now, like big name magazines and newspapers, putting things behind a very frustrating paywall. So we can't actually get beyond the headline many of the times. Yeah, it's a great question. One that I've thought a lot about even personally. I think the first thing I'll say is, is you define some of these existing products as free. You can access them and they're free. And I think this is the biggest issue is, is we call these products free when really we are part of the product and it's our data that we give away. And so nothing we experience on the internet is free. Instead, it's just the models in, in which, you know, the models and the ways in which we interact with them um, that might change. Uh, so a good example that I think about personally is my personal switch from writing on Medium to writing on Mirror. I guess in some ways you could call me a creator where, you know, I write and I have a following of people who read the things I write, um, but it's not necessarily my full-time job. I, I mostly just do it for fun. And it would be nice to earn money from my writing, but I certainly don't want to pay wallet. And um, I don't want people to have to like shell out a bunch of cash to, to read my gated articles. It's more of just interesting ideas that I want to share with the world. And so I would always put it on Medium for free and they would get shared around a bunch and it was great. But I had this I, kind of personal creator guilt of like, I, I can never make money off of this. I can never charge people or have like a paid Substack subscription to read the things that I want to talk about. And then Mirror came along and it's, like I said, it's a decentralized publishing platform that lets me put my content on the internet and people can read it the same way they had before, you know, to the end user, it looks just the same as Medium, but it gives audience members or readers the option to buy ownership in my work. So if they believe that this has value and that value will eventually go up, or if they want to say that they were an early adopter of, of the things that I write about they could buy ownership. And so I tried it out for the first time about a month ago. And I guess I'll say it worked out a lot better than I thought it would. <laughs> and I think a lot of people have these moments in crypto or web three where they're like, oh my gosh, this actually works. And that was a perfect personal example for me of that I'm definitely making the switch over from, from medium to mirror. So I think that's a good example of like, not everything is going to be a walled garden or not everything is going to be paywalled, but certainly there will be different ways that we interact with that content. There's even another company out there called Coil, and it's sort of trying to do what Medium does um, just internally on that, on that network, but for the entire web. And so um, generally the idea is you would pay a small subscription and that subscription gets paid out to creators based on where you spend your time online. 
And so again, it's, it's not necessarily paywalled, but it does give you the opportunity to support the people and the places where you spend time most. Um, and so that concept of ownership is really interesting. I think also in general, when we think about the creator economy, obviously it's huge. It's like bigger than the term itself. Um, there are so many people who can be considered creators for so many different reasons who are profiting off of the work that they do. But when you think about it, like what are creators without their fans and their early adopters who help them succeed? And in a lot of the current models, there's no way for fans or audience members to be able to say, I supported that person before, before anyone else did, or, you know, I shared that link with my friends, or I, I told all my friends about this artist on, on SoundCloud before anyone else knew about them. And then what do you get for that? Um, so there are a couple of proof points there. For example, Spotify has it with the day one listener. Like I was a day one listener of Kanye West, or I got one a couple of weeks ago. Of like I was in the top 10% of Olivia Rodrigo's listeners this year. And that's cool, but I'd love to have some real ownership in that. Like if I helped them succeed, I'd love to be a part of that. And so I think these models, these new models help give way to that structure where everybody's incentivized to help the people that they support the most genuinely succeed and the stakes and incentives are aligned. I think what's really helpful is that in a way you answered my earlier question about whether old platforms could succeed in ways that new platforms can't, because it seems as if what you're saying, especially if the ownership example is that when a platform is taking on a new function that doesn't actually challenge the underlying idea of what the platform is. So Twitter, hey, like we can just put up fleets or hey, we can just add an audio function that just brings your followers under that thing. Obviously that's something Twitter could do, but the conversation around ownership that you're having is actually really interesting because that concept there is requiring Twitter to try to innovate in a way that actually goes against the assumptions that the platform set was built under. So I'm trying to think, and this is your, your day job, so I hope you have a better initial answer than I have. Can you think of other concepts aside from just ownership that could possibly provide opportunities for reimagining these in online interactions, cultures, communities, et cetera, in ways that 2000s era social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, wouldn't necessarily be ready to fit? Yeah, I have a half joking one. And then Shreya, if you want to chime in with your ideas as well, this is really only half joking. Um, but Perhaps some of you have heard <laughs> just in general, people saying there should be a Tinder on the blockchain. Um, in my opinion, what that comment really means is there should be a better way to understand people's identities in digital space. And so dating is one example, but so many of the things that we do in everyday life, so dating, recruiting, you know, hiring, like all of these different topics, these are all extremely social activities. So the people you date, you often have a mutual friend or someone who you know, you'll probably put their resume on the top of your list. All of these things, these are just traditional behaviors that we have. But in digital space, it's hard to figure out what those identities are and what identities you share with others. And so, so I think through Tinder, it's like, who are these people? Um, but now we're having better and better and, and more high fidelity ways of sharing and expressing what your identity is. A perfect example is like, what social tokens do you own? What DAOs are you a part of? What NFTs have you bought? And so now for me, you know, example, I bought something called a crypto Venetian, which is an NFT that you can only buy if you go to this physical art gallery in Venice. Um, and if you own this crypto Venetian, you can go to these special events that are held at this art gallery in Venice and you can meet other people. And every time I go, I meet so many friends and I say, what number are you? Like what number crypto Venetian are you? And it's amazing. And we have this shared thing in common and we're all kind of bound together by this shared mission there a better way for me to connect with people who have those in digital space or share it, you know, more prominently on my, on my Twitter or other social medias, even now, like we've all seen this huge wave of people putting NFTs as their profile pictures on Twitter. Mine is a me bit. And so if I find someone else who has a me bit, we have this immediate connection. And so I think this, this idea of sharing identity in digital space is going to be huge. And so when we think about what, what a Tinder on the blockchain might look like, it might be, you know, sharing what, what social tokens you are a part of. And you might have a lot in common with someone that you swipe right on with, you know, on this Tinder on the blockchain. And that might be a better way that people connect in this, you know, future uh, Web3 world. So again, half joking, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Shreya, I don't know if you want to chime in. Yeah, I think the thing that I, I don't even know if this technically counts, like I'm still pretty much a noob to this space, but the thing that I'm really excited about, which is connecting the, the digital and physical worlds is having just increased context. Um, 
a couple of days ago, I was kind of wandering around like the East Village in New York and it's jam packed full of cute, interesting things. But the way that I have to discover more about them right now is walk around holding my phone, looking up everything on Instagram, TikTok and Google constantly and just typing it in, taking screenshots and sending links to myself. And what I would rather do is just have I don't know, maybe like the the better version of Google Glass and just have that context pop up in front of me. Like I want to pick up a unique snack or like a interesting seltzer that I've never heard of and immediately see like the founder, when it was created, how I can buy more. Like if it's cheaper two blocks away, if it's sold in a cool cocktail at another place like across the street, um, then I would probably do all of those things, want to understand the experience a little bit better. And it doesn't have to be limited to consumer products, but I feel like with consumer products, there's a lot of opportunity being left on the table by it being, it's increasingly easier and easier to find out this context, but it certainly could be even uh, faster and richer. I think what I'll add here before we go any deeper and why I think it's important to, to care about these things um, is in Shreya's example, you might hear that and say, well, well, that's nice, but it's not needed. The products we have now work, you know, Google maps works, Yelp works. Right. And I think what's really important is like, yes, those do work, but it's when we think that we're fine and we don't need anything else. That's when the big innovations happen. And so in the piece I most recently published called curators all the way down, I, I put it on mirror. So shameless plug to check out that platform. Uh, I kind of start the piece off by talking about Mark Andreessen's most famous piece, Why Software is Eating the World. And so this was in 2011. Basically what he says in that piece is it's at these moments where we seem we need technological innovation least is when that innovation actually happens. And so at the time that he wrote the piece in 2011, you know, everyone thought the future had already arrived. The iPhone had been out for four years. Facebook had 850 million users, right? Like we're in the future. It's already happened. And then Andreessen publishes this piece. And then in 2010, Uber launches. In 2014, Airbnb reaches 1 million listings. Basically, every traditional non-tech industry all of a sudden started to begin act like started to think and act like a software company. And so this was a real tipping point in, you know, when when we seem when it seems like we need them least, these technological innovations start to happen. So Uber with transportation and, and Airbnb with hospitality. And so when we think now, you know, a decade later, now all of these platforms have reached mass scale and they do work just like a decade ago. You know, the future had arrived. But in my opinion, it's it's at, it's at these moments when the, the next wave of technological innovations will happen and, and that watershed moment will arrive. This is the perfect pivot to the next section because to date myself for a second you're basically describing high school for me when you're saying people were talking about you mean me um you mean it was very cool to get that iphone 3 when i was going off to college so could you from the more career-centric part of this can you talk about what it is like and how you think folks should think about the space in this moment, because to throw it to you, Shreya, real quick, we had an interesting conversation around the social network, which also came around in 2010 that I think grounds the cultural perspective that people from a certain like, generation were approaching this from and how that could relate to today. I think that the thing we were talking about was that um, obviously a, a typical generation spans maybe 15, 20, 25 years. Um, but in the tech industry, it seems like it's probably more like five and the social network came out in 2010. And I was trying to think, and I was like, I wonder what feels pretty much as dominant and as inspiring as a movie or a book or a TV show um, that inspired Gabby, like your generation, if I can say that for every five or so years um, of people in the industry. Do you, do you have anything in mind that you think did that? Wow, that's a great question. So, so are you saying that the social network did that for you and, and less for my generation? Or are you thinking like, what is the next thing that will get the next generation to, to kind of follow? It could be both, but I think that the timing is really interesting. So 2010 uh, was when I graduated from high school. When I talked to people in particular who were approximately 16 to 20 when it came out, it had a huge impact on us versus people who are a bit younger, they were a bit young for it. They couldn't necessarily see themselves in the shoes of a college freshman or sophomore. And people who were older were a bit old for it too. 
Um, whereas right in that sweet spot, it was quite formative. It was right at the time when you're going off from high school to college and you're like, what, who do I want to be in this world? What do I want my future to look like? Um, and I think it's, it's many questions like, was, was there something like that around 2015 or 16? Was there anything that did that for you? Do you think there's something in kind of this crypto web three metaverse space that's doing it right at this moment around 2020, 2021 um, for people? Yeah. I'm not sure for me personally. I do know in 2016 is when the term influencer was formally defined in the dictionary. And so I think, you know, influencers and, and generally the creator economy was a huge part in people realizing that they can find work either, you know, as creators in that space or as influencers on different platforms or working at places to help, you know, move that trend forward. And that's not going anywhere. Um, and that ties really closely into trends that we see in Web3. Even today, uh, it came out that Visa bought a CryptoPunk and that's now in Visa's portfolio. And <laughs> it's getting really, really hard to ignore these huge shifts. And so, Obviously, there's still a long way to go for crypto to kind of reach mass scale. But today was a great proof point of that. You know what's super interesting that I'm realizing, to your point, Shri, and I didn't think about this when we talked this weekend, maybe is it that for the younger cohorts, it's the existence of Twitter, the way that tech Twitter specifically works that serves that galvanizing force? Because back in 2010, when we graduated from high school, obviously Twitter exists, but there isn't the same culture of getting on Twitter and putting your thoughts out there. You know, we're, we're referencing Packy McCormick's I'll keep on referencing. I, I loved his great online game essay. I recommend that everyone here take a look at it. It's probably the best piece of career advice I could offer because it just talks about, hey, just start putting your thoughts out there, start building your community, start building your space. So it's not that you need to have a social network movie that says, hey, you know how you thought you were going to go work on Wall Street? Actually, go out to SV in the Bay Area and go build things. It could be much more, hey, it's okay if you live in Jackson Hole or you live in Miami or live in New York. You can actually start building both your public persona, but also your intellectual cohort. So I'm just curious, Gabby, how does Twitter, uh, because you have a huge amount of followers for like, you know, where you're coming out from college and like getting into either career space, how, how do you think Twitter itself is playing a role in this? And how does that maybe relate to the future of these communities, which relates back to your conversation about um, curation and those pieces you referenced? Yeah, to start, I played and I continue to play the great online game. So uh, that piece also really resonated with me. Um, my stories, I studied computer science and philosophy and so always was interested in tech and specifically consumer products and you know how people interact in digital space, but quite frankly, had no idea what I wanted to do for my career. And there are all these artificial constraints and rules that people set on themselves, or perhaps they used to be true, but they feel artificial now of, you know, you have to work at you know, a big tech company or in consulting or banking, and you have to get an MBA and like, this is where you have to live and all these things. And similarly, like as the world or as the internet is getting more decentralized, like, so is the world and all of these things are a lot less important. So for example, I don't think I'll ever go to business school. And I thought I probably had to for a while. And I never ended up at, at a job at like a big consulting firm or like a big tech company or anything like that. What ended up happening is I lost my job due to COVID and I had gotten on Twitter probably like one or two weeks before in February of 2020. And I decided to follow a lot of the smartest people I could think of who were spending time on Twitter. Um, and it very quickly gives you a window into what the smartest people in the world are doing on a daily basis and what they're reading and what they're writing about and who they follow and, and who they talk to. And all of a sudden I had a, a better understanding of kind of how all of these puzzle pieces fit together. And before it was such a black box to me and I had no clue. And shortly thereafter, uh, one of the very smart people who I had been following, Jeff Morris Jr., posted on Twitter that he was hiring an intern for the first time. And so in a sense, like the stars had aligned, like all of these things started to make sense to me. So I worked with him and, and I was able to kind of get my first taste of venture capital there. And, you know, that kind of directly or indirectly led to my next job in venture. And so much of the work I do now stems from things that I find on Twitter or I find on the Internet. And that's how I met Sharia. Um, and all of these things. And so I totally agree. There's so much more variance and so much more optionality than there used to be. I think there are a lot of artificial constraints that people set on themselves of what they have to do. But um, when you exist in places like on Twitter and you can be whoever you want and you can share your thoughts with whoever cares to read them, 
it, it opens a lot of doors and there's a lot of opportunity. I wonder if one of the big differences is a story like the social network is uh, fictionalized, but it's this inspiring story that you could imagine yourself being a Zuckerberg-like person, whereas getting on tech Twitter really early, making a few friends around your age or your cohort, um, instead is someone you actually know and meet. Even if you don't blow up on tech Twitter, you can know somebody who does within months. And it's enough to kind of get the engine going and say, I know I could be like this person because I just watched them be in the same place as me three months ago. And now they have like this hot startup job. They're starting something cool. They're working with somebody I admire, someone uh, influential in the industry is mentoring them, something like that, that kind of gets the, get the, gets the wheels turning and makes it feel more possible. You know, something that comes to mind, given all this, um, Gabby, especially your reference to decentralization, you know, you're, you're out on the West coast, you're coming to the East coast and to play with the social network metaphor for one last torture to reference the whole idea, at least for my group was go out to Silicon Valley. That's the space. That's where everyone's meeting up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think about, especially if you're early to mid career, career transitioning, so I'm talking to my friends who were in investment banking and then pivoted to tech after four or five years when they didn't want to go to business school. How should people think about place and community in the real world, given the decentralization? How should you choose between New York, Bay Area, LA, Miami, Austin, et cetera? Yeah. So I'll start with like my tactical answer, and then I'll answer with kind of what I think, what I want the world to look like one day. Tactically, I don't want to give any prescriptive advice on like move to SF or don't move to SF or this is where you have to live. Um, in my personal experience, I've spent uh, basically all of 2021 living in Los Angeles and I love it. If you're interested in crypto, I think like the kind of social crypto and Web3 community here is fantastic. Um, I think it's also a great place to be building in consumer because you are physically quite close to the media and entertainment capital of the world and that has proven to be, you know, genuinely quite helpful. And it's, it goes beyond than just like being able to say that, um, shameless plug. I am a big fan of launch house, which is sort of like a hacker house for, for startup founders. Uh, their initial house is centered in Beverly Hills. And so I've spent a bunch of time there and being able to see founders who are coming from all over the world. Like there's a big concentration of founders coming from the Midwest and places like that who had no connection with Silicon Valley or really anything in tech. Now being able to connect with, you know, big TikTok uh, creators for, you know, influencer marketing pushes and things like that. It's proven to be so, so helpful. And so I'm long LA for the consumer ecosystem, but like you said, I'm moving to New York in two weeks and I'm also super excited to be there. In general, I think it's great to live in a city and just be close in proximity to lots of interesting people who are there for um, whatever is driving them to live there, you know, both inside their work and then also where they spend outside of their work. But I will say kind of more theoretically about like the future of, uh, you know, how we decide where, where and how we want to live is generally it feels a little bit backwards that you move to a place where you don't necessarily know anyone. And then you'll get on to a service like next door to try and figure out who your neighbor is. And now you have to find your friends in this strange place. And what I think the future will look like and what a lot of startups are working to build launch house a little bit, but also things like together Casa is instead of moving to a place and then trying to find your friends, once you get there is find your friends and you should all move to a place together. Um, and so building communities from the ground up, seems to make a lot more sense. We're not totally there yet. Obviously I have a bunch of friends in New York who I'm excited to live nearby, but I think that will kind of be the future of how we connect in, in physical space as well. Well, instead of being top down, it'll be more bottoms up. So when you talk about something like that, do you mean forming online communities and then taking them to a specific place? Like how do you, how, how does, once again, we're talking in theory here, so no need to be too precise, but if you just think about that, put maybe a little more meat on the bones there. Sure. The URL IRL divide is getting really, really blurred. And so I'm not necessarily saying bring your online friends and put them in real life um, because your online friends might be your real life friends and your real life friends might be your online friends now. And so that line is more blurred. Um, but I do think it will look more like 
get your friends together wherever they come from. And maybe it'll be a 50, 50 split of half of them you met online and half of them you didn't. My split of my, my close friends is starting to look like that. And from there, you kind of figure out what that community looks like and where you want to spend time. And of course, physical space is so important to, you know, your own quality of life and how you like to do things, but being able to spend that time with people who are close to you and, and share the same values as you is so important. I'm curious, kind of building on that, um, finding those IRL to URL friends or the reverse. Um, I think that one thing that a lot of young people think about when they're entering tech is um, risk and people talk about risk in startups, but I think that we all mean something different when we say risk. People have something in mind, but then they use that word as this blanket idea. People might find it risky to move to a new city with no friends. They might find it risky to start a startup. They might find it risky to work at a startup because it's not a quote unquote established company. Um, How do you think about risk in your own career and your own decisions? Sure. So kind of my, my day job now feels uh, more risk averse than what a lot of young people choose to do now, which I think is amazing, like starting a company or working in crypto and things like that. And so my job is not risky in that sense. Um, but I did take a decent amount of risk to get there. So I took multiple, you know, semesters off of school. I moved to a different country and I was working there, living alone um, for a period of time, which is kind of how I found my way onto Twitter, trying to meet people and things like that. Um, I think in general, your risk appetite starts out pretty high and it continues to go down as you get older and you get comfortable and you start making a salary and things like that. And so typically the questions I ask myself are, if not now, then when, if not me, then who, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I'm a big proponent of taking risks early in your career. There's also this tweet that um, has stuck with me and I actually sent it to uh, a person very close to me in my life who works at a big tech company and is now leaving and looking at a job, looking for a job at, at a startup or in crypto. And I think this kind of helped solidify it. So I'll, I'll read it out loud from Nikita Beer. If you work at a big company, virtually none of your skills will be transferable to starting a company. Waiting to get more experience is not only a waste of time, but may actually net out negative. Your risk appetite, scrappiness, and foolishness will all take a hit. And um, I think that extends far beyond to just, you know, working at a big company and then to starting a company, but just generally risk appetite as a young person. Um, I think this makes a lot of sense. And I agree with the sentiment. You know, before we get to the audience Q&A, Shriya, please jump in after me if you have a a last question here. But I would just love for you, because I really enjoyed the writing, to just explain a little bit of your curation argument. Um, You referenced it when you were talking about Mark Andreessen. There are some good Malcolm Gladwell references, which is a 2010 grad. Malcolm Gladwell was very cool in 2008. So uh, that's, you know, really catnip for me. So can you just talk about your curation argument and how it relates to the broader conversation we're having? Yes, I would love to. So I guess I'll start by saying uh, exactly a year ago, this is actually wild that it's been a full year, but uh, about exactly a year ago, I published one of my very first pieces online. So I had kind of like just started, you know, spending time in these digital spaces. And I published this piece called Curators Are the New Creators. And basically what I wrote about is um, there's a lot of content online, ton of people posting things on Facebook and uploading videos on YouTube. And that's great. And more content is awesome. But now as consumers, it's really, really hard to separate signal from noise. And so what we're going to rely on is curators, trusted people to help us figure out what's valuable and where we should spend our time online. Um, And generally, of course, I, I still agree with that thesis. And I've been able to meet a lot of companies who are building in the general curation space but over the last year, I was I was almost disenchanted with what I had written because I didn't find anything that felt like it answered my question. And so, you know, as a small example, it's like I, I spoke to a lot of companies who were building curation platforms where instead of posting your own content, you could curate content from other sites and put it there, which is cool. But then you have no content that's native to the platform. And so, so what's the value, right? Being a creator is really hard, but being a, a curator doesn't feel that hard. And so then how do you separate what makes a good curator from a great curator? And how do you figure out what's worth paying for in those questions? And I was really grateful earlier this year to meet Jesse Lee, who's the founder of a company called Basic Space, which kind of sits at the intersection of curation and commerce. And he basically called me up and said, I love the piece you wrote, but you missed the point. 
And we need to write it again and talk about this intersection of curation and commerce. And so I started out that piece by uh, explaining what I said earlier about um, Mark Andreessen's you know, general thesis in why software is eating the world of technological innovation often happens when it seems we need it least. Um, and then I tied that into, as you said, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, when he published this piece called The Cool Hunt, which is a short read, I think, on The New York Times. And um, it's an amazing read. But he basically said the cool hunter plays a major social role in spreading trends. And they know it's cool before other people do. And that's a really valuable place to be. And uh, basically, the thesis that we came up with uh, in this new piece on curation is... Like before, the web is more saturated than ever. And as consumers, we're spending more and more time trying to sort through it all. Um, and in this state, how do we separate signal from noise? And you know, the point that we really honed in on this time is influence and you know, having a lot of followers is not necessarily synonymous with taste. And uh, the, the difference between following someone to be entertained, like an influencer on Instagram or TikTok, is not the same as following someone to make a purchase. And, and, and that's often quite overlooked. And so we talked about all of these people who are really strong curators in digital space and in real life, but may not even necessarily have a big name brand for themselves. And so we talk about people uh, like curated meme accounts on Instagram, like the fat Jewish and fuck Jerry. Uh, we talked about uh, kind of like fashion and culture Instagram accounts, like hidden New York, nineties anxiety, new Bottega and all of these people are really prominent tastemakers who do make a living off of their taste, but not necessarily off of, you know, their influence about how they look. We even found a way somehow to tie it into Kanye West and his impact in music and production and how he kind of paved the way for a whole new generation of curators like Virgil Abloh, Matthew Williams, Heron Preston, et cetera. Generally the thesis of the piece is, Fashion trends kind of, you know, here, but in general, just big trends in culture and kind of the future of where we spend time used to be very top down. And now with the future of how we interact on the internet and who can emerge as a tastemaker of what's worth spending time on, what's worth buying, what's worth interacting with, et cetera, all of that went from top down to being trickle up. And so I'm really excited about these products and services and platforms that are trickle up and the curators who help us sort through the signal, separate us, uh, who help us sort signal from the noise. Can you help me understand how curators themselves get paid? Because curator is a really cool word. At the top of your piece, you have the dictionary definition of curator. It's very vibey. I love it. But another way of saying curator is aggregator. And if you're looking back at the 2010s, folks, companies, whatever, who became aggregators, especially on the content side, especially folks saying, hey, like there's always writing out there, let me put it all together. Those companies, those individuals don't seem to be the ones who won relative to the ones who actually were just like, hey, I want to be Ben Thompson and make my own stuff and put it out there. I'm going to be Gabby Goldberg and put my stuff out there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So do you think that there's a, is, is the pushback I'm saying missing the point? Is there something to it? Um, how do you just think about that aggregator part of it maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, the examples I gave like hidden New York and new Bottega and things like that, they're really good proof points of how this is shifting right now. And of course it's still early days. And so um, we'll see how much this plays out in the future, but these are people who don't have their, you know, their real name public online, or at least not tied to this other identity. And they've been able to kind of build a following just for their influence. And so if you go to 90s Anxiety or New Bottega, it's, it's a curated Instagram feed of like, you know, what they think is cool, quite simply. Mm. Um, and since then, since they built that influence and people trust them for their taste, they now are able to kind of monetize that. So whether it's curating their own lines of clothing that may not even be their own name brand or later on coming out with their own brands, but they built that following not from being a creator, but from being a curator. And so uh, it was fun to write this piece with Jesse from Basic Space because I think Basic Space is a perfect example of this, you know, sitting at the intersection of curation and commerce. So Basic Space doesn't just curate products. They don't just say that this is a brand you should buy from, but they curate the sellers too. And so some of the highest paid sellers on Basic Space don't have their name listed on the site. It might be one of these Instagram accounts that kind of like flies under the radar. 
And so um, what basic space does is they like celebrate these rugged individualists of tomorrow, but they also give the rest of the world direct access. And so this is how curation scales because anyone else looking at this level of curation and might not have, you know, like the prettiest face or the best dance skills to, to make it big as an influencer on these traditional platforms now can build influence by being a tastemaker and then can join the ranks of these larger players. Gabby, you just referenced big and small in this whole conversation we're having about web three crypto NFTs, metaverse, all of those basically parts under it. Do, do these developments, trends, pick your poison, how you want to describe them, do they favor bigger things or smaller things? Because if I'm thinking back to, once again, you're referencing influencer culture, everything's about getting X number of, of followers. Everything's about getting X numbers of engagement. You want your blue check, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does that assumption change in the online platforms and cultures you're describing here? That's a great question. Shreya, also feel free to chime in here. I think the first thing that's coming to my mind when you ask that is the ways that we define status and what makes something big is also changing, right? And so now it's not just about, you know, the number of followers, but it's the engagement and conversion you have with that number of followers. And even beyond that, now, when we think about NFTs, it might be someone who has very few followers, but owns a crypto punk or owns something really valuable. And all of a sudden that brings their social capital up. Um, So this idea of big and small is tough because as the internet and as the world gets more decentralized, it's not like you have these big conglomerates and these big winners anymore. There's actually a lot of room for the long tail and there's a lot of room for um, niche ideas to reach scale. And uh, there's a lot of upside in being an early adopter in these niche ideas. And so, uh, gosh, I, I hope that answers it. I mean, I, I don't totally think about it as big or small anymore, but I, I do think it's a little bit misguided to see a big trend and try and chase it because these trends are, cha- are changing. Yeah, Shreya, I'll actually throw this question to you because to build on what Gabby just said, is the speed at which trends and conversations are changing, is that speeding up? Because maybe this is me just being a little out of it, but it seems like things are moving much quicker than they were. It seems like one week we're talking about one topic, the next week we're talking about another topic. And it's just not the second you're asking about it, you've basically maybe almost missed it to a certain degree. So I'm curious, once again, you and I are talking about this at a generational level. Are you noticing that to a certain degree? Oh yeah. Like I think that this is why Gen Z calls millennials boomers because, and calls everyone boomers because um, I'm, I'm feeling it. Like the fact that mm, Dozens of people that I follow on Twitter over the past three days have gone from having their face as their profile picture to an NFT. A couple of weeks ago, it was just like a small batch of cool kids. It was like the party round thing. It was a couple of other things. And then all of a sudden it's hit some kind of inflection point. I don't recognize my feed anymore. And then I look at their names and I realize that it is people that I know. They just don't have those faces anymore. And I think that that is a very visceral and visual example um, in this ever increasing trend. And I feel like the to, to tie it back to curation, um, there's an untenable amount of information and trends and type cycles to keep up with because people have gone from being famous for, for 15 minutes to 15 seconds. And so you kind of have to narrow in on the topics and the streams of information that you care about, the streams of people that you care about. Otherwise it's it's totally overwhelming. It almost ties into this general statement, which has existed long before this conversation has, but if you build for everyone, you'll build for no one. And if you build for one person, you might actually end up building for for a whole lot of people. You know, something I'm wondering, another piece that you referenced, I think this was in Mark Andreessen's writing, was just this idea that what really happened during the late 2000s to 2010s was tech became everything and the distinction between a quote unquote normal company and a tech company became smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where it basically doesn't mean anything. When, and I know people hate predictions, so I'm not quite asking for a prediction here. I'm preventing you from using that defense. But I went to I went to a bachelor party this weekend, and I just once again I noticed Shreya, you put it really well. All the cool kids had you know CryptoPunks and different MFTs. I was with you know fifteen other people, and one other person had heard of this trend of this focus. 
And what basically is happening here is this was a crew that has nothing to do with tech Twitter. Some people actually were blue checks. These are journalists and politics and policy, but just totally outside of that space. When do you think these trends jump to the other rail? When does that expand? But that seems to be if we're going to tell one quote unquote big lesson of the internet since the you know early 1990s and even before, it's that these start in this very specific, almost nerdy space, but it almost certainly expands outwards. How do you think about how that process will operate with the ideas we're talking about? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Um, even kind of like in my work, I, I invest in consumer and now just you know the nature at which consumer is changing. I now invest in consumer and crypto because a lot of the most exciting consumer products are, are built with, with crypto in some way. Um, and so I've been lucky to meet a lot of people who have helped to inform my thinking here. Two of them that I'll that I'll name drop for this answer um, are Brian Flynn, who's the founder of Rabbit Hole, and Cooper Turley, who works on a variety of different DAOs and other projects in crypto. Um, and and kind of what they've helped illuminate for me is last summer is what was known as DeFi summer. Um, and this summer is what a lot of people call NFT summer, where over the last year they made a bunch of money in crypto and now are spending it all on these digital goods that they can display. Um, lots of times on social media, like you both pointed out with you know new profile pictures and new NFTs in your wallets and things like that. And from talking to Brian and Cooper, what they and now I think will come next is sort of like a culture summer of this is how people uh, display their social capital, and this is how they express their identity in digital space, et cetera, et cetera. So first it went from kind of this financial upside of making a lot of money in DeFi and in crypto. Then it came from making purchases from that upside. And now it's sharing those with the world. So again, like you said, not a formal prediction, but I think quite soon, maybe by the end of the year or next summer, we'll start to see this be a lot more mainstream. Evan Chen has a question. Evan, I'm going to ask you to unmute and you could come up and uh, give us your question and say like, you know, who you are, like what you're doing, quick two-sentencer. So I was an ODC one, as you can tell. Um, recently joined a startup doing some data science work for them, but have been involved in crypto for quite a while now. And I wanted to ask a follow-up question um, that, Marshall, you asked. You said the when, but more so the how and the what is going to be the thing that's going to start influencing more broad adoption? Will that be downstream for like people who are not necessarily tech native, maybe not has doesn't have a lot of influence on the general market or even upstream where these are the actual regulators who are looking at these? Um, like, is there two different ways it has to happen? And if so, what is what are those going to be? Yeah, that's a great question. I would approach it from from two ways that kind of need to meet in the middle, which is like the cultural perspective and then the technological perspective. And there's work that needs to be done on both sides. So from the cultural perspective, we can think about mimetic theory, which basically tells us that people want things oftentimes just because other people want them. And, uh, you know, our, our preference and the things we care about is actually not really an autonomous process, but a collective one. And so just the act of seeing everyone change their profile pictures from a real photo to a JPEG, that's actually really important. Um, and it's not just a joke because this is actually how we make real decisions in our lives. And, and this has existed uh, much longer than, than cryptocurrency has existed. So that's kind of on the cultural side. And then from a technological standpoint, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to kind of fix the, the real usability problems in crypto. For example, like MetaMask is the way that most of us interact with, you know, like anything built on Ethereum, for example. And there's like a real usability problem with MetaMask. I would never expect my mom or dad to be able to understand how to use it. And the end goal is that there will be something where Literally everyone can use it and it takes one or two clicks to spin up this digital wallet or digital identity or, or way of interacting with these applications on the web. Um, it was pretty cool. Plug for Rainbow. I shared my mirror piece in my family group chat with all of my um, you know, adult relatives who have no idea what crypto is. And my uncle wanted to buy some ownership in the piece I had written. And he was like, how do I do it? I don't know what MetaMask is, but I only have a Rainbow wallet. And so I had to help him figure it out, but it was so cool to hear that he even had a rainbow wallet. That was like an amazing step in the right direction. So on the cultural side, I think just as more people adopt it, it'll be like, you know, slowly and then all at once. And then from a technological perspective, better design, better ways of learning financial literacy and crypto is something I'm really big about of like, what are going to be the tools that teach people how to make smart purchasing decisions in this new ecosystem? And, and ideally they'll meet in the middle. 
Can I ask one follow-up question um, to that first component? Um, so we obviously see a lot of people who are on Twitter who start changing profile pictures. Do you then see that transitioning over to larger customer bases like Instagram and LinkedIn, or do you not see that as, as viable an option? I haven't seen it on LinkedIn. I have seen it on Instagram. Um, Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, Again, it's tough because at least for me in the, in the places where I spend time, my peers are using those sites and platforms less and less. And Twitter is a big one for, for people who work in tech, but they're spending their time on other sites and on these sites that are more fast growing and, um, are bringing on the, this this younger user base of people who are you know more readily adopting the trends. These shifts have already happened, and so I would bet that yes, we will see them. Um, but I guess we'll find out. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and I think we have one last question, um, quick question before we get to um, final closeout on Shreya's end. Um, but Jackson, can you uh, come on and uh, ask your cue? Yeah, sure. What's up, y'all? So Marshall, apologies to you, but all of the social network discourse made me think about how the culture of building has changed. Because like, I thought about that movie, uh, because we talked about it so much, and so much of the plot is the Winklevoss twins coming after Zuckerberg for secretly stealing their idea for Facebook, right? And Gabby, you, unlike Zuck, are a big proponent of building and public. And much of what you and your peers are our building is, is released into the world before they're necessarily like fully baked, like commercial ready concepts. And like my, basically my question is why, like, why is it that your generation seems to be so much more collaborative and open to sharing these lessons learned early on in the entrepreneurial pursuit? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if I can speak for everyone like me um, or just like, you know, my peers, but for me, I see, posting on Twitter as working with the garage door up, which is a quote I read a while ago and really resonated with me where I'm not necessarily calling for the world to come and listen to me. And I'm not trying to use these like growth hacks to get follows, but it's more like, this is what I'm thinking about. And this is what I'm putting into the world. And um, hopefully I can attract the people who are thinking about the same things. And that has proven to be true. And it's been really helpful in my career and also personally to kind of work with the garage door up. So I think just kind of like as we spend more time online and a lot of the work we do starts and stays online, it makes a lot of sense to be able to build this like real holistic and and living resume of the things you care about. And so it would feel really backwards for me to give someone, you know, a a one page resume of, of what I care about and what I stand for. But it actually would probably make a lot more sense to send someone my Twitter and you can see over time how the things I care about have changed even recently, like it felt like a big shift for me to change what was in my bio of, I used to say I was writing about consumer technology on Medium. And now it says I write about community, commerce, curation, and crypto on Mirror. And that was a big shift. And being able to scroll down and see those changes has actually been really valuable for me personally and also helped kind of attract the people who have the same values and interests as I do. So um, again, I don't know why everyone else does it. I think it's smart. So I would encourage people to do it. And oftentimes when I talk to young people and they're trying to break into tech or break into venture, the first piece of advice I give them is to get on Twitter because that was the first piece of advice that I got right before I lost my job. And it definitely worked out for the best for me. Thanks, Jackson. So Shreya, you want to take us out? This has been great. Thanks for the questions, everyone. Totally. Um, Gabby, I'm I'm curious. Let's Let's go into the the looking glass a little bit. Um, if this past summer was like the NFT summer and last summer was the DeFi summer, uh, what are you excited about next year? Culture summer, credit to Cooper once again. Um, very bullish on that. Um, people spending time more in digital spaces, uh, sharing their identities better online, being able to better share their digital experiences, whether it be through screenshots or live streams or modern friends and all those things. Um, that's what I'm very excited about. And if anyone is building in that space or thinking about it, please find me and I would love to chat. 
You heard it here first, Culture Summer. Start tweeting about this and claim it as your own. Gabby, uh, huge thanks to you for for doing this, for sticking with us for an hour, and huge thank you, obviously, to the audience, too, which it's actually really awesome to see the viewer numbers stay consistent. Nothing is worse than that slow decline of death that we've all experienced in different contexts. So this is really great. Um, last, last, last real question. Gabby, anything you want to shout out that you've done other than the recent curation piece, and then we'll take it out. Ooh, I'm writing another piece right now that I guess I'll encourage you to stay tuned for, which is um, what I think is wrong with social tokens today and, and where I think it's going. Click. So you just got to, you got to pre pre-subscribe click for that. That sounds really great. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> well, yep. Yeah, thank you, Gabby. Um, that's all we got, but Hey, everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, in the deep end, if you're listening to this live, we will be doing many more of these live episodes. There's so many great things to talk about here. So we will see you all next time. And thank you, Shreya, for joining as well, joining me on the co-hosting duties. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.